All right, well, Happy New Year. It's so good to see you guys. You may be seated. I want to ask you a question that I hope you'll answer honestly. When you hear the word imagination, what do you think of? What do you think about? Maybe you think about what I do, which is child's play, right? It's, a, it's an act of imagination that creates invisible friends, fiction, fairy tales, and even unicorns. The act of imagination creates things in our minds that are not real, but we want them to be. And while there is certainly an element of that, of the fantastic that is associated with the imagination, thankfully... There's actually much more to it. The truth is that imagination refers to the distinctly human capacity to image anything and everything that is not readily visible to our eyes. It's the distinct human capacity to image anything and everything that is not readily visible to our eyes. So think about it. Using his imagination... Okay, when, when Isaac Newton discovered gravity, he saw something that anyone could see, which was an apple fall from a tree, but he also saw something that no one had ever seen. Through his imagination, he saw a force of nature that made it fall, gravity. When you've misplaced something in your home, like the remote, does that ever happen to you too? It's maddening, isn't it? What do we do? Well, a, we do a mental walkthrough of our movements, right? We think, okay, I got up off the couch. I'm picturing all of this. I got up off the couch, went into the kitchen to grab snacks. We are using our imaginations to create the scene in hopes of remembering where we put that dumb remote. That's an exercise of the imagination. When we're hungry, we can imagine what we want to eat and where we want to eat it. If someone asks you to describe a friend that they've never met, what happens? Immediately, a mental image is pulled up in your mind, and then you work to paint a word picture so the other person will be able to understand or see your friend. You are describing them using the imagination. We, we use our ima imaginations all the time. And it's not just to escape reality. We actually use them to be able to function in reality. And so more than merely seeing what is unreal or fantastic, imagination is used to image anything that is not readily visible. Now, importantly, this is really important. Importantly, the imagination is crucial to a vibrant walk with God. Your imagination is crucial to a vibrant walk with God. Think about it. When you need a booster shot for your faith, what do you do? We, we read the Exodus story and we imagine what it must have been like for the Jews to be trapped between the rampaging Egyptian army on one side and the Red Sea in front of them. We imagine what it must have been like for God to part those waters and enable them to walk through on dry ground. When we are in despair and we're not really sure where to turn or if there's any hope, we imagine what it must have been like for the disciples 
When, when the resurrected Lord Jesus passed through the walls of their hideout in the upper room, exposing his wounds and proclaiming his peace, and when we're feeling insignificant, unloved, and, and perhaps even unlovable, we can imagine the scene in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son where the father runs to the son with arms wide open, accepting him unconditionally with love and grace. Listen, all of that is in keeping with Scripture. All of that keeps our faith life alive and active. We must actively engage our God-given imaginations if we're to have any hope of a thriving life of faith. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul exhorted believers in Colossae to do that very thing. If you have your Bibles and you want to follow along today, we're going to be reading primarily from Colossians chapter 3. Colossians is about four-fifths of the way to the back of the Bible. Colossians chapter 3. And we are going to read verses 1 through 3. Colossians 3, beginning in verse 1. Listen to this charge to leverage your imagination. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. These are commands. What are the commands? What are we commanded to do? Set our hearts and minds on things above. What, is, what are things above? They refer to those things that we have not seen things above things we have not seen they are they are things that we have not and will not fully experience in this lifetime but they are things that are critical for us to focus on if we are going to rise above our limitations set your minds on things above in order to realize our God-given potential as people who have been raised with Christ, we have to imagine what we cannot see. As a matter of fact, Paul exhorted the Corinthians in his second letter to the Corinthians to fix their eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. What's he talking about? Fix your eyes on the eternal rather than the temporal. To do so requires an active imagination. So imagination is clearly important. It's an important part of cultivating the life we've always wanted to live. Agreed? Scripture's clear, right? Now let me ask a question. Does that mean that a lack of imagination, which many of us suffer from, which I suffer from at times, does that mean that a lack of imagination or our inability to consistently set our hearts and minds on things above, does that mean, is that the reason we see so few victories in our Christian walk? Is that, is that the problem? 
Is, is, is it my lack of imagination that does me in? That causes me to stumble over and over again? Does, does my lack of imagination ensure that I'm going to faithfully flounder as a follower of Jesus Christ? Is that, is that the implication? If that's what it means... then don't I have to conclude that the dynamic life in Christ is dependent upon me? Okay, if I fail in this area, whether it's imagination, that's the one we're looking at today, or if I fail in the area of forgiveness, or if I fail in the area of sharing my faith, does that mean that I'm the reason that I'm struggling This conundrum highlights a very real problem with our Christian life, and it may help us understand why victory in Jesus so often eludes us. Now, listen, this is just going to require you to be honest at some level. At some level, there are days, moments, days, and even seasons in our lives where we... Like, it's just not working. We sing about it at church. We read it in the Scripture. But it... it, it, mm, I'm, I'm just not... It's not happening for me. The truth is, there are times where we don't live in the victory promised us. We, we don't enjoy the change we signed up for. I don't know many people that came to Christ and said, I've got everything is perfect, but I'll just take some life insurance. That's not how it works. People came to Christ primarily in crisis, recognizing a need for change. And so we sign up. We open our hearts to God's grace and receive it by faith in hopes of change. And yet, if we're honest, we don't always experience the change we signed up for. And so the the truth is the discrepancy between what we thought we would find and experience in the faith, which is positive life change, and what we actually experience in the Christian life, which is frequent frustration and failure, that discrepancy leads us to conclude that there is something wrong. That there is something very, very wrong. Because when we embrace the gospel, which, by the way, is the good news of Jesus Christ, it is the good news that we can be reconnected to our Creator and live in hope in victory, when we embraced the gospel, we embraced the promise of eternal life, that is life after this one, and the promise of abundant life. We wholeheartedly believed that if we accepted God's grace, then we could live in the victorious blessings of God's good graces, that we would enjoy abundant life. But Things are not always as we imagined. And so, we ask the questions. 
We run through all the possibilities of what in the world could have gone wrong. And there are really three possibilities. We, we say, have we been sold a bill of goods? Like, is this just another get-blessed-quick scheme that just wants my money? Is that the problem? Or, is God not who we thought He was? Is, is He not the good, loving, benevolent God that I hear about so frequently? Or, the third possibility is, am I doing it wrong? Is, is, is that the deal? Now, I, I'm going to be honest, there are people that would, could fall into any one of those categories. There are some people who answer yes to, this is just a bill of goods, it's a hoax. There are people who would say, yes, God is not who you think He is. I think most of the people in this room who sit still at times to know that God is God, who open His Word in hopes of finding the path to peace, I think most of us would pick that third option, which is what? We must be the problem. I'm the problem. I must be doing it wrong. But, but think about what that says. When we decide we are the problem, then we naturally conclude that we can also be the solution. Right? I mean, if the, if the mess I've made, I made, then I have to clean it up. If I'm the problem, I can also find or work out the solution. The idea is that if we're doing it wrong and we want to fix it, then we obviously just have to do it right. So go back to Colossians chapter 3. Is, is my lack of imagination, is that the problem? Is that what's keeping me down? If it is, then what do I do? I, I, I just have to be more imaginative. I need to go to the self-help section down at Barnes & Noble and find some books on cultivating a magnificent imagination. So what do we do? What do we do when we find something we're like, oh, that's what you preach about, that must be a problem, I've got to fix it. What we do is we immediately seize control of the issue and embrace a do-it-yourself mentality towards spiritual growth, spiritual transformation, and ultimately towards sanctification. We believe it's up to us. And listen, that has disastrous consequences. Why? Because it takes the process out of God's hands and puts it into ours. We abandon the hope of victory in Jesus and we replace it with the hope of victory in me. I can do it. I will do it. I'll get this right and win. That is a catastrophic mistake. Devastating for the life of faith. Not because the change that we long for is impossible. 
Listen, the change that you long for, the change that we signed up for, is not impossible. As a matter of fact, it is highly probable. It is possible. Trust me. It's just not possible when it's up to us. If you think you're the problem... I'll point at me. If I think I'm the problem and I think I can fix it, I'm going to be profoundly disappointed. Because I'm not the answer. And by the way, neither are you. What we long for is not possible when it's up to us. See, the victory that has been won, the victory that is ours to experience is not solely, thank God, dependent upon us. As a matter of fact, the reality is we have a secondary role to play in winning this battle. Why? Because it's not primarily a battle of the flesh. That's Paul said, hey, keep your hearts up here. Keep your hearts on things above. Keep your minds on things above. Listen, just as our relationship with God is established by God and His grace, it grows and is sustained by God and His grace. God's grace saved us, and it is God's grace that will sanctify us. It is God's grace that will establish the abundant life we signed up for. That's the means to God's grace. Flourishing in this life of faith is not about me. It's not dependent upon me. So, here's what we have to conclude. It's not my salvation, it's not my, and this is what we talk about all the time, my salvation, my hope, my peace. That's not it at all. All that's God's. Have you ever thought about this? In, in Psalm 51, as David was confessing his sin with Bathsheba, he prayed that God would restore to him the joy of his salvation. Not David's salvation. Like, I used to feel saved. I used to feel connected to God. And therefore, I am I'm thankful for my salvation. That's not what it is. It is God's salvation. Jesus told the disciples, My peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. And later he explained that he taught them the truth so that his joy would be in them. God's salvation, God's peace, God's joy. The things we long for. The signs of victory are not ours because we can't earn them. Okay, listen closely to this. This is really important. They are not ours because we do not earn them. If we could earn them, we could claim them. But the Scripture is clear. They belong to God. They are His to give by grace, and we must receive them by faith. They are His good graces. 
Now, what I want to do is go back to that passage of Scripture from Colossians chapter 3. We want to look one more time and see if we missed something because it clearly seemed as though it says that if we muster up enough imagination, we can get our lives moving in the right direction. Didn't that seem to be what it said? Let's look at Colossians chapter 3 beginning in verse 1 again. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Since this is what happened, do this. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Yes, There is no question we are commanded to set our hearts above and to set our minds on things above. But we actually miss the fact that our ability to do so is completely dependent upon what God has done for us. As a matter of fact, Paul says, you're dead, you can't get there from here. You can't do this because you're dead. So what did he do? He raised us with Christ. He has hidden us in Christ. Now think about this. Since he raised us with Christ, he raised us above the fray of the physical world, making the change we seek possible. Because he raised us with Christ, our hearts can actually be set on things above. And since we are hidden in Christ, he has actually given us a new identity, and therefore we have a new way of looking at things. Because of what God has done for us and what he is continuing to do in us, we have the ability to do what he is commanding us to do. We have the ability to give him our hearts, to set our heart on things above. That is, that is literally transferring our allegiance from the kingdom below to the kingdom above, transferring our allegiance from building our kingdom to building his, and in him we actually have the capacity to change our minds, thinking about focusing on and even imagining life above. But if we are not hidden in him, we do not have that capacity. But since we are hidden in him, we know that the renewing of our minds, which is possible, which comes because we are in him, it's the renewing of our minds that lead to the transformed life we desire. That's what Paul said in Romans chapter 12. Be ye transformed by the renewing of your what? Minds. Not that you change your mind, but that God changes your mind and then he changes you. So listen, the key to victory that Paul is writing about in Colossians chapter 3 is not the transfer of allegiance. It is not the imagining of a heavenly existence in our power. The key is being with Christ. And experiencing his power. See, it's not about doing. It's about being. But being what? With Christ. 
with Christ. It's not doing something for Christ. It's not getting your imagination right. It's not forgiving everybody who's ever offended you. Those are important things. But we're only empowered to do so when we are with Christ. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. Because you are hidden with Christ, set your minds on things above. It's not doing for, it's being in. You know what the theologians call that? Union with Christ. It's actually about our union with Christ. So what is that? How, how should we define union with Christ? Well, I, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I've spent much of the break trying to pin that down. And what I've learned is it's, it's kind of like a good joke. If you have to explain it, you'll kill it, right? Like, it's, it's, it's hard to pin down. Now, I, I, that probably sounds like a bit of a cop-out. But, but I want you to understand that when Paul was talking about union with Christ, he, he wrote about it in the letter to the Ephesian church. And in chapter 5, <coughs> in chapter 5, he equated it to marriage. Union with Christ to marriage. And then he labeled it as a profound mystery. Not marriage. I mean, I guess he was assuming. He's talking about, sorry, union with Christ. Profound mystery. So what, what, what does that mean? It means we can, like, see it feel it, kind of understand it, but we, we can't nail it down. It means that no definition of union with Christ is really going to suffice. Because why, why is that, by the way? Because there is something mysterious about a human being in community with a holy God. A fallen, finite, frail creature in communion with the holy God. The created being in union with creator is mind-blowing. But that's what it is. And this idea that's so difficult to pin down is absolutely critical to the victorious Christian life. It is union with Christ that is absolutely the key to our ability to set our hearts and minds on things above. It is union with Christ that unlocks the power to do anything that brings us victory, to live the abundant life, which, by the way, is to leverage our imagination or to offer forgiveness or to give generously or to mind our manners and close our mouths, to refuse gossip, to live for God's glory. It is union with Christ that enables us to do all that and more. 
So let, let's just start right here as we begin this series with, with this insufficient definition of union with Christ. Okay, here it is. Union with Christ means that you are in and with Christ who is in and with you. Union with Christ is being in and with Christ and Christ in and with you. Now for the next few weeks, we're going to explore union with Christ and how it is the key to immeasurably more than we are experiencing. Absolutely key. It is the key to victory for every believer. You know why we sing about victory in Jesus? Because that's the only place it's found. Oh, victory in Jesus. It's the only place it's found. Now, let me tell you two of the, the most famous, powerful, moving prayers in Scripture. By the way, prayed for you and prayed for me are primarily about union with Christ. Now I'm going to leave, leave you with these two prayers today. And here, here's my hope is that you'll meditate on them and, and just let God's Spirit speak to you and help, help you understand what this union means. But you, you've heard we, we talk about the Lord's Prayer, right? We, we know about the Lord's Prayer, but there's actually a high priestly prayer that Jesus prayed in the upper room with his disciples on the night before he was crucified. This is like last things. This is the last thing he said to them, that he prayed. John chapter 17. And in that prayer, he begins with prayer for himself, that he would glorify God by finishing the work God sent him to do. And then he transitions to praying for his disciples that were sitting around that table with him, that they would be protected for the work and effective in the work that he was leaving them to do in his name. Father, protect them. Then... This is mind-blowing, but then Jesus actually prayed for us. Did you know that? John chapter 17, beginning in verse 20, listen to what it says. My prayer is not for them alone, referring to the disciples sitting around the table. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. That all of them may be one, unity, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us. What was Jesus saying? The most important thing I can pray for them to live the abundant life and to effectively manage my mission is that they would be in union with us. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. I in them and you in me, so they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you love me. Listen, in other words, if you want to live the victorious, effective, peaceable life, for God's glory, Jesus said, look, I'm, I'm going to pray about the most important part of it. 
union. Being in them. He prayed that he would be in us, that we would realize his presence. By the way, he prayed that he would be in us just as God was in him. And you know what he said about his own ministry? He said, Look, I don't say anything or do anything that the Father has not directed. That's the level of union they enjoyed. Why did Jesus pray this? Because he understood that it's our union with him that gives us victory in the Christian life and, by the way, strengthens our witness for the Christian cause. It is union that gives us victory. It is union that enables our imagination. It is union that enables us to forgive. It's union that gives us the courage to bear witness and to stand on truth. It's union with Christ that compels us to generosity. It's union that ensures that we enjoy the change we signed up for to begin with. To the church in Ephesus, Paul prayed along these same lines, and we're going to camp out in this passage of Scripture, I think, for a few weeks here. But I want, I want you to listen to what Paul prayed for the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. He said, For this reason... I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. In other words, you'll find your purpose. You're important because your name is derived from His. I pray that out of His glorious riches, He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit. Where? In union in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts, live in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, how long, and how high and deep is the love of Christ, to win the victory in love. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Look at this statement. That you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. There's the victory. And it's not victory around you. It's not victory on the outside. It fills you. The measure of all the fullness of God. Now, he wraps up this prayer. To him who is able to do immeasurably more. Immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. Then in our own power, he can do more than we can ask. He can do more than we could ever imagine. How does he do it? According to his power that is at work within us. How do we experience immeasurably more? When his power is working in us.
to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Listen, it's the most important facet of victory in Jesus. It's union with Christ. It's being united with Him. Now, how do we get there? Well, I've, I've been hinting around it. It begins by grace. He initiates it. And we receive it by faith. It's His salvation. We receive it. It's His peace. We receive it. It's His joy. We receive it. How do we receive it? By faith. We choose to believe the good news. We choose to believe that Christ, who lived and died, was buried, He rose again and is alive today so He can live in us. When He came up out of that grave, He defeated sin. He ensured the victory. It is yours. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are in him and he is in you you have everything you need for victory everything so it begins with faith in Jesus have you placed your faith and trust in Christ you believe the good news of the gospel lived a perfect life, died on the cross for you and me, forgive us for our sins, was buried, raised from the dead. If you believe that story of grace and receive it by faith, you have not only eternal life, because your heart has changed, you have the capacity for abundant life. All the, God's power at your disposal to be able to obey to be able to live the victory. That's where it starts. So have you come to the place where you have trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Are you united with Him? If you're united with Him, are you living in union with Him? Do you see yourself as He sees you? Victorious overcomer. That's what he prayed about. That's what Paul prayed for us. We're, we're going to explore how to get there from here. So I want you to stay with me. Okay, the next few weeks, stay with me. But today I just want you to realize that in Christ. The victory you long for is possible. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, thank you so much for providing all that we need to find victory, to live the life that you've called us to live. Lord, thank you for your grace. 
If there are any here today, Lord, who do not know you, who have not received your grace by faith, the good news of Jesus, I pray that today would be the day where they cooperate with your salvation. They confess with their mouths and believe in their hearts that Jesus died for them and was raised from the dead. Thank you for the grace of salvation. And Father, for those of us who know your salvation, I pray that we would live in your victory as we open our hearts and minds to the mysterious power of union with Jesus. We love you, Lord. We bless your name. We're thankful that your plans are better than our, ours. We ask that you would enable us to trust and enjoy victory, not for our glory, but for yours. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.